0: show dedicated to celebrating the ongoing mystery and dream that is cinema, and tracing film history through the decades via the films that have meant the most to me. My name is Jonty Cornford, and I'm a writer, editor, composer, music producer, and a lover of film. On this week's episode of the show, I'm joined by Jack Sherlock, a mate of mine and a self-confessed Dune nerd, to talk about our second David Lynch film on this show, the 1984 film adaptation of Dune. Please enjoy episode 8 of the Blue Rose Film Podcast.
1: A beginning is a very delicate time. Know then that it is the year 10,191. In this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange. The spice extends life. The spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe. The planet is Arrakis, also known as Dune. You are about to enter a world where really the unexpected many dangers exist on Arrakis. The unknown and incredible secret had been kept on this planet. And the unbelievable meet. I see two great houses. Few. Years. Where kingdoms are built on earth that moves. we have worm sign, the likes of which even God has never seen. And skies are filled with fire. The prophecy which will cleanse the universe can bring us out of darkness. We're a young warrior. Ah! ...called upon to free his people. No. A world that holds creation's greatest treasure. He who controls the spice controls the universe. And greatest terrors. No! A world where the mighty... This is genocide. The deliberate and systematic destruction of all life on Arrakis. The bed. Ah! <laughs> I will kill him! forever and the magical father the sleeper has awakened will have their final battle long live the fighters do not show the slightest pity or mercy emperor we come for you doom a spectacular journey Through the wonders of space and the mysteries of time from the boundaries of the incredible to the borders of the impossible now frank herbert's widely read talked about and cherished masterpiece comes to the screen dino de valentis presents dune a world beyond your experience beyond your imagination
0: A couple of things written down for 2021,
2: but they 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 will they will work for this as okay. well. Okay, um, I want to talk about that movie as well. Abso- th- no, absolutely. I thought it would be cool if we talked about this one first and then do that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah. this we'll- is a great way to start the podcast by explaining this mishap.
0: Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the podcast, everyone. Uh, hello, we hello. We've got Jack. Uh, G'day, Jack. How are you? G'day, Jonty. I'm good, thank you. We um, uh, talking about Dune. Dune. We. we I think initially decided we were going to talk about David Lynch Dune. Yes. And then somewhere along the way, I got mixed up and thought we were talking about Denis Villeneuve Dune. Or I got mixed up. Either way.
2: Somewhere along the way, we got our wires crossed. Yes. But we are talking about David Lynch Dune. Which is convenient because I have notes in front of me about David Lynch's Dune, (laughs) not about the 2021 Dune. Which... John T, I, I would like, if this goes well, if I don't um, stuff anything up, it'd be nice to talk about that at another time and then we can do a bit of a comparison about, um, yeah, what Denny did and what David did. Absolutely,
0: yeah. So, welcome. Thank we, you. We've done a bit of podcasting before. We have. It um, wasn't that
2: long ago when we were recording on another great podcast that you yes. are currently doing. Yes, Um I'll tag that down below.
0: I, I've talked about it before on this podcast, I think, but Filthy Hope. It's Filthy Hope. For all you Jesus freaks, we talk about that over there. Um, Jesus freaks. But yes, let's talk about um, Dune. Now, we. Um, I, I thought you would be a great person to talk about Dune with because you are a self-professed Dune
2: nerd. Well, I'm a nerd about quite a, a few things. things yeah. but, but yes, uh, Dune is probably my... No, it's definitely my most recent nerdom. Um I still haven't finished the book series. I'm about halfway through um, Chapter House, which mm-hmm. is the second last book. Um, but there really isn't a bad one that I've read of Frank Herbert's book so far. I've heard that Brian Herberts are awful, um, but each to their own. Um, Brian is Frank Herbert's son who then went on to write with... Um, Someone else who I've forgotten his name, apologies, but they together have partnered and they have written a whole bunch of sequel prequel books, um, which are still still coming out. I think. Yeah. Um, they've also written a comic, um, and a lot of stuff that supposedly fills in the gaps in David Lynch's time. Sorry, David Lynch's timeline in Frank Herbert's timeline, but some of what Brian has written has directly contradicted what Frank has written from what I've heard. Interesting. Um, so I think I'll probably finish off with Frank's stuff and probably just start rereading straight again from the beginning because wow, are these some incredibly in-depth books? Um, and they're very weird. Yes. Which in a way supposedly would make a perfect match for our friend David Lynch. Um, I think today uh, sounds like I'm c- just completely taking over the show. This was what my idea, Jonty, was that you'd come onto my podcast and, <laughs> um, and I would fill in or I, I could give references about June from the source material and you might be able to help make some connections with David Lynch because I know you're um, much well-versed with his work than I am. Yes. Um I'm I'm really a bit ignorant when it comes to to David um Davy boy. So yeah, what do you think about that as an idea?
0: No, that sounds great because um as you say, I'm a I'm a Lynch fanboy. Um, great. We've already talked about one of his movies. I didn't want to say podcast. fan
2: because I know you've seen a lot of his films, but I didn't know whether you actually like him as Well, a... here's the thing.
0: I I it, I always uh, I'm careful using <laughs> that word mm. because so many people like it's, it, it the difference between being a fan of someone's work and being a fan of the person
2: yes. is a really interesting yes, distinction yes, yes, to yes, make. Yes, yes. And it's
0: not that I have anything against David Lynch as a person. I think he's weird and says some problematic things sometimes. Yeah. But I'm, I'm such a huge fan of his work. Um, Great. Well, so I think that this should make for an interesting conversation then. Absolutely. Um, and I think... The, you've touched on this already, but the 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 dynamic between who David Lynch is as a filmmaker and this material mm. is so fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> because we talked about um, I think it was a couple of weeks ago now. Um, we had a had had a talk about David Lynch and Star Wars. Mm. He turned down Return of the Jedi. Yes, but took up Dune. Yeah, which makes it a very interesting like kind of. Um, thought experiment like, what would Star Wars look like if he said yes to Star Wars what? and then didn't go on and do Dune? Yeah,
2: and there's actually a fascinating connection between those two films because, um, for those who don't know, Dune far outdates Star Wars yeah. and, uh, deeply influenced the, f- the franchise Star Wars. Um, Cause it's 1965,
0: is that right? The first uh, book? I can't like tell you that?
2: off the top of my head, but yeah, I'll I look th- it up. Started in the 60s, I believe. Yeah. Um, and yeah i i mean dune as it, as itself um is just an incredibly influential sci-fi novel um i'm not going to pretend to be any expert on sci-fi but i have heard experts in sci-fi talk about <laughs> the influence of dune on all sorts of other um source material um and it really paved the way for sci-fi to be taken seriously mm. um interesting backstory with Dune with is it wasn't um, – because the idea of writing a sci-fi novel um, in, in long form was so uh, unheard of at the time, Dune was actually initially released um, in three parts. Uh, three parts, I believe. I that's, think that's correct. Right. Yeah. Um, and each had a different, different name. And basically, um, from what I understand, it was more of a cult following. And then once it gained success – it was released as a book um, and that actually is what led to the rest of the the franchise. Um, and those sections are still, like when you read the yes. book
0: entire, it's split up into those three. Yes. Yeah.
2: yeah. Um, and actually there's a, actually a really good adaption by the sci-fi channel, mm. um, which is quite, well, it's very low budget. Um, the CGI is awful, but it's incredibly faithful and actually- I don't know. I quite enjoyed it, um, to be honest. Uh, and I believe it's in that particular um, sci-fi rendition where they released it in three parts and each part oh. they had the title for that segment. So there's some fun trivia for for mm-hmm. the book. But I understand we're not here to talk about the book. But the book will come up, obviously, because it's an adaption. Um, yes.
0: And and while we're here real quick as well, the other major that there are quite a there's a huge list of attempted adaptations, one of the major ones being the Jodorowski's I was wondering films, if this would come up. Which we don't we don't need to talk about this <laughs> for a long time, but it's there's a documentary
2: about it which is fascinating. Yes. It never
0: got released, but it was gonna be like fifteen hours long or something. Yeah, uh, it
2: was it was the most from what I've heard, it was the most like sanctimonious yeah. uh, um when you talk about artsy fartsy This sounded like it was literally that. But then also at the same time, it was so disrespectful. Like in its... So from what I've heard, um, he didn't even read the book. No. He got like explained the book and then he went, I've got an idea. I'm going to turn this book that I haven't read into a 15-hour film. Um, There's all sorts of weird stuff. The casting was ridiculous. I think Salvador Dali was meant to be in it. And... I believe it was either Salvador Dali or someone else was going to be paid like $1,000 a minute purely just so that he could be the highest paid actor ever at that Mm. time. And that was the only reason that he wanted to be paid that much because he wanted to like... And he was
0: going to be on set for two or three days yeah, and they'd shoot all of his material and then edit around it and insert him into the film somehow. Yeah. Look, I'm (laughs) so glad it didn't happen. Um, (laughs) It made for a great documentary. Like it's fast. And like some of the, um, like the concept art for like the ships and the the art and the architecture, looks really, really cool. But it just would have been an absolute dumpster fire, I think. Yeah.
2: And um, look, I, 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 yeah, we'll just leave that there. Um, But speaking of really cool designs, um, one of the first things that I want to say about, this film is like, I, I'm i not someone who is super against um, this rendition, the 1984 rendition of Dune. Um, I think it's got issues for sure and it's wacky as hell, mm. but I kind of like its wackiness. Um, and one thing that I have to give credit is the, the designs. They're fantastic. Like they're so... Um, Unique. Like every single uh, character, every single um, race and, and planet has this own really unique design. And that's something that I really appreciated. Mm. We should, before we dive
0: in proper. Sorry, yes, I'm getting ahead of myself. No, no. no. Um, can you give me your best recap of, of broad strokes, <laughs> the, the events of Dune? Uh, the book. Or let's go
2: this this film. Okay, um, so we begin by uh, a voiceover from Princess Irulan, who proceeds to spoil the whole film for us. Um, <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> uh, the like June is supposed to have foreshadowing, but mm. the way Frank Herbert wrote it was. Some was obvious, but the majority of it was sprinkled so lightly that you couldn't really work it out until after reading it. And then it's one of those things that you go back and you're like, oh, all the breadcrumbs were leading us here the whole way. But literally Princess Irulan is just like, yeah, so there's this planet Arrakis and it's got this thing called spice. And spice is really important, guys. Remember that. (laughs) And then there's also this guy called Paul Muad sorry Paul Atreides. Completely unrelated, this June planet has this mysterious messiah figure that they believe in. <laughs> let's uh, put a pin in that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Remember this Paul guy? Yeah. We're back to him. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> so essentially, the story of June revolves around um, this young young man who, in the books, I think he's 15 mm. at the time. Um, And essentially, he's from the Atreides family. And in the Dune world, there's these different major powers and they are kind of like royal families who live on different planets. And what I'm explaining this as if no one has watched this. I'm assuming that people have watched this film, so maybe I don't need to dumb it down as much. But essentially, um, the emperor of the known universe has asked the Atreides to take over this planet Arrakis, which is previously um, been run by the Harkonnens and the Harkonnens and the Atreides have mad beef. They have for quite some time. Um, and so this move is clearly very, um, well, it's going to cause a lot of, of conflict and controversy that the, um, Harkonnens have been stripped of this planet, which, um, has a lot of mystery around it. It seems to be a planet that a lot of stuff is going on with, but people don't seem to really know. Um, it's also where all the spice is, which is yes. very important. which is what people do kind of know is that the spice comes from there. And so spice or the spice melange is this substance which um, has a lot of georatric, georatric... Am I saying that right? Georatric? That sounds weird to me. i right? sure. Georatric. I think I'm saying it wrong. Th- that word, it, it basically it can make people live longer. It's really good for you. It's really healthy. So it seems. Um, And it's a very... It's like caviar, you know? Like the rich people eat it um, and they put it in everything. They put it in food, they put it in drinks. um, And basically the one place in the whole known universe where the spice comes from is Dune or Arrakis. Um, It's also um, like interstellar travel. Yes. It's powered by spice. But I'm not sure whether and this is the problem with Irulan's crazy introduction to the film, Mm. is I'm pretty sure that most of the known universe don't realise that the Spice is actually Uh, helping with the travel. Maybe they do. Um, I need to brush up on that. But essentially there are things about the Spice that people don't know, Mm. but the Spacing Guild who um, use the Spice to travel around the world by folding space... so they basically create a black hole and then, or a wormhole, sorry. Um, and then they make this really, it's really weird. They focus so heavily on it in, in the film, the 1984 film about this thing, how they can move without moving. I don't know why, maybe it was just a, something that David Lynch thought was a really cool idea, but they focus on it as if it's a big plot point, but really it's just like, yeah, they can. It's just the mechanics of the yeah, travel. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, also, it might be a good time to mention we've got some music going on um, upstairs. So, Yes. Um, <laughs> that, that's not me editing editing in music. There if is you guys a, are hearing yeah. Christmas carols. Um, well, we are near Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. I don't know when you're hearing this. Um, and something else I wanted to say as well, before we go any further with this. Mm. So the Americans say a lot of words funny, right? Mm-hmm. But one word that I think makes complete sense is Dune. Dune as in- Because like, if we think about it, right? June is like June, July, August, you know, it's a month, right? It's spelled with a J. And yeah. then we say June the same way when it's with a D. So credit to the Americans. I think they got this one right with Dune. Anyway, back to back to the story. <laughs> um, the important so yeah, stuff out of the way. <laughs> essentially, um, the Atreides go to Arrakis um, and there's this big- uh, uh, conflict as the Harkonnens basically are still around. They're still um, pulling strings. And it turns out that the emperor has basically used this um, transfer of the Atreides to Arrakis to force a conflict between the Harkonnens and the Atreides. And he is providing the Harkonnens with an army, um, the Sardica, who are like the Marines of the known universe. They're like the most like, uh, intense and like well drilled and dangerous deadly force in the known universe, known, known of because that will come in later, um, and yeah, they they, they basically attack the the Atreides and um, kill the Duke who is Paul's father. Now, while this has been happening, one of the things that the Atreides wanted to do that the Harkins never did was to try and get the local people on their side in Arrakis. And these people are known as the Fremen um, and they have blue within blue eyes um, and they are uh, poorly depicted by Frank, Her- sorry, by um, David Lynch. Um, I think Frank Herbert deals with it really well, particularly given the time to have this mysterious ethnic people, which is a common trope in, in, books and sci-fi. Um, but I think he does it in a way that doesn't come across as uh, the the sorcerers from the Eastern world, which is mm, what yeah. a lot of, yeah, poorly characterized um, characters are like. Um, but yeah, the, the Fremen are involved somehow. And after the attack on um, on Ara- Arakeen, which is the capital city of Arrakis, um, the... Oh gosh. It's a complicated story. I'm like I'm trying to give a, a recap. Essentially, yeah, the Harkonnens attack. Um the head of the Harkonnens is Baron Hark Harkonen, um, or Harkonnen. Um and the Baron is this big fat dude who has suspensors which make him fly. Um we'll come back to that. That's actually Canon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that wasn't just a random thing that David Lynch put in. He actually no, that's, that's needs he needs these suspensor things to help him support his own weight because he's that overweight. Yeah. Um, And yeah, essentially, the Baron kills um, the Duke with the help of a doctor who is part of the Atreides. He betrays the Duke, which is how they managed to attack the the palace in Arrakeen. And um, yeah, Duke dies, but Jessica, his wife, um, and Paul's mother, and Paul himself managed to escape. They meet up with the Fremen in the desert. The Fremen go to kill them, um, and Paul and Jessica prove their worth to the Fremen, um, and they basically allow them to stay. Um, What this film omits, which the Denis Villeneuve movie does not, is there's a crazy conflict because one of the Fremen doesn't believe that Paul should be allowed in, and he has to fight him to the death which David Lynch leaves out, which I do want to come back to, cause that's very important in what I believe is David Lynch and most of the people who read Dune's biggest understanding, big, biggest misunderstanding of Dune because they don't read Dune Messiah, which is the uh-huh. sequel. Yeah. Um, and I don't think Denny is misunderstanding it from the tone of his film. We'll come to that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, essentially he kills this guy. Um, but that doesn't happen in the film. So I'll leave that out. Um, what happens in the film is the Fremen go, oh, wow, Paul's this amazing dude. He's so great. How cool is Paul? And then he straight away comes in and seems to like take over all the Fremen forces because of the weirding way. Oh, boy. This is where we get into the sonic blasters. Um, yes, we'll return to that. My name is a killing word. Uh, <laughs> um, essentially, then Paul... Um, And the Fremen fight back against the Harkonnens um, and they basically take over Arrakis by force. The Fremen turn out to be this, um, have the capability to be this amazing warrior tribe and were completely ridden off by both the emperor and the baron. Um, And yeah, it turns out that they actually are an incredibly um, deadly force to not be messed around with they've lived out in the desert for millennia they're hardened and incredibly capable people um yep they they take over they um basically have this big conflict where they get onto the emperor's ship um meanwhile paul's mother has had a daughter um after consuming the this pure spice essence um, and goes through what's called the spice agony where she converts into a reverend mother. All these terms are, I would need to explain all these, but I'm assuming everyone's seen the movie. Um, And so she gives birth to Alia, Paul's sister. Um, And Paul's sister is a, basically she was born like, while still in the womb, she was exposed to a millennia of consciousness effectively. Um, And so she's, Real mature for our age. (laughs) Um, To which point she then goes and kills her... Oh. We should probably put some spoilers in at this point for the Dennyville New movie. Yeah. Because there are some things that aren't in this film that are in the book and will come up in that film. So I should probably say now, if you haven't read the book, then there will be potentially some spoilers here. For future Dune movies. Yes. Yeah. So that first spoiler is that um, the Baron is actually Paul's grandfather. Um, and so Alia kills her grandfather. Um, and yeah, effectively the the grand finale is that Paul fights um, the Baron's nephew, Fade Rautha. And who's played by Sting in the film. So funny. Um, and that is very different to the book as well. But essentially, Paul wins and claims the throne for himself. And then it ends very similar to how um, the f- the first prequel Star Wars movie finishes, I think. With this big celebration of like everyone loves Paul. And it starts raining in Arrakis. Um, and Arrakis is saved by Paul Muad'Dib, the Messiah. Mm. And Sorry, I mean, that was a very convoluted explanation. For, I a, realized, very, for a very convoluted movie. Yes, but movie. as I was going through it, I realized there's actually so much which I kind of take for granted because I, I've listened to like whole episodes of a podcast like about one particular thing in history. So I'm just like, oh yeah, that's that. But a lot of people might be confused by what's happening because David Lynch doesn't explain a lot. And he basically combines a book that is a twenty hour audiobook, to give an idea, into I think hour forty five movie. There's a
0: couple of versions.
2: Oh, is there? Yeah. But
0: interestingly enough, so the the long the big long three hour quote unquote TV version isn't called David the David Lynch. But it's not the director's cut. It's the assembly cut directed by Alan Smithy, which is the pseudonym that used to be given to movies that didn't have a director, because right. he had such an awful time on Dune that he wanted nothing to do with it. So that there is a longer version, and I
2: think there's there's I think there's three. But, Wait, he, but who, who had such a awful time? David Lynch, which really? We'll, which we'll talk about. Okay, yeah. Fan- yeah, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. I'm learning. I'm learning. Good. Yeah.
0: Um, but yeah, so none of them are particularly coherent. So one of the things that the longer versions have is more exposition in voiceover. So just people like her right, yes. face on screen telling you stuff. Which is Princess Irulan? Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in, in the long version, her head's like floating. Is, is this in the normal version? So it's that like, does happen at the start. Yeah. yeah. So that goes for longer. Right. And her face starts to fade out. As if you're like, okay, great. We're going to now move into the action. And then it fades in
2: again and goes- Hang on. And, the, and another thing and then I she goes back I into I I have it. seen this. I think maybe the first time I watched- Because I've seen it twice, mm. the 1985 version. I think that did happen the first time I watched it. Mm. Interesting. So maybe I have seen that version. But when I watched it last time, which was a couple of weeks ago, I watched the shorter version. The shorter version, yeah. Um, interesting.
0: Yeah, so- I think what a, a really interesting thing that I noticed when I watched, uh, like, so I rewatched the Villeneuve one recently as well, mm. um, in preparation for this, in, pre- <laughs> in preparation <laughs> for this episode, um, where that movie ends mm. is pretty squarely at a, at structurally quite a good halfway point in the mm. novel, but is about twenty minutes before the end of the David Lynch film, so <laughs> it 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 just like it does as good a job as it can to set up a whole bunch of stuff, but mm. then just rushes through it as quickly as it can because it it can't be a five-hour movie. I,
2: I think part of the reason why that deci- – and maybe I, I need to hear more from from David Lynch's side, which he might be able to help me out with, mm. but my assumption was part of the reason why he skimmed over that whole section so much was because David Lynch, along with uh, a lot of other people – have this idea that Paul is a hero yeah. in this story. Um, Paul is not a hero in the story. Paul effectively um, uses the Fremen for his own gain to get his revenge on the emperor and to get himself on the throne. Um, and there is an element of morality to it in the in the um, in the book and. You can see it in in the in the Denny version is that um he's trying to avoid this terrible thing from happening, which he refers to in the book frequently as my terrible purpose. He mm. repeats that quite a lot, and essentially um from the very first time we're introduced to Paul, which is when he's dreaming um back on uh what's the country called uh, the planet I can't remember oh um it's just left me, yes. His home planet, where the Atreides originally were. Um, he is dreaming of this woman, um, which we later we find out to be Chani, um, who's played by uh what's, a, what's her what's the name in the newer version. Um oh, Zendaya. Zendaya, yeah. Um <coughs> but he's also dreaming that he's going to die. Um, which we don't get at all in the David Lynch version. Um oh, we do a bit, but it's very skimmed over. We do get it a lot in the Denny new version. He keeps mm. seeing basically Chinese stabbing him. And essentially in the book, Paul has this idea that there's going to be some kind of religious war. There's going to be, um, yeah, this big, terrible event where heaps and heaps of people are going to die. And he's trying to avoid that as much as he can. Um and so there is an element of Paul acting in a way to try and stop this terrible thing from happening but at the same time his visions the reason why he says terrible purpose is because he's from the start acknowledging that somehow he's going to be complicit in the death of these people um and essentially the reason why June Messiah is so important as a sequel is because it finally gives the other side where Paul is not only complicit, it is under his rule that millions, billions of people are wiped out by the Fremen when they gain control um, under religious war. And so Paul is not a hero in a story. Frank Herbert's writing has a lot of core themes. He was a staunch environmentalist, Um, And that can be seen in his discussion about the restoration of Arrakis and whether that's a good or bad thing that becomes more of a debate. It seems like a good thing in June. It becomes much more complicated as you go through it um, about how whether an environment is part of culture as well as, um, so it's really complicated. But another thing is this constant thing that he seems to bang his readers over the head with, which is beware of charismatic leaders, beware of messianic figures. Yeah. And where David Lynch and so many other people seem to get it wrong is they go, Paul's the Messiah. Yay. He's the hero. He's going to come save the day. And that's exactly what happens in his version of the film. I think it's a lot more obvious in the way that Timothy Chalamet is playing the role in Dennyville News version that Denny doesn't look like he's going to fall into the same mistake with that. Mm. paul is a very much more complicated character in dennyville news version he's not particularly likable mm. um and he he is power hungry we see that side of him um when they're escaping the harkonnens um in in the Villeneuve version um and he says i could be emperor and he uh, the first chance he gets he starts pitching his campaign for why he should be emperor and i think that's a lot more reflective of the Paul that we see in the books. Mm. Um, whereas this Paul that we see in the the story is this, is it just a classic hero's journey type of Paul? Yeah. Um, and he's just painted as the most good guy ever. And he even has that look that like- So I was going to talk about Carl McLaughlin yes, as yep. an actor.
0: So he most famously, I think, is Coop in Twin Peaks, mm. who is like the paragon of- boyish charm and enthusiasm and goodness in yeah. the world. And I think that's comes across in the same way yeah, in yeah. Dune.
2: Well, he plays that character well. It's yeah. just the wrong character. It's just the this. wrong character. Yeah.
0: And I think it because this does come out in the wake of Star Wars, which is so clear-cut good guys, bad guys, it takes part in that. He even looks a bit like Luke Skywalker. He does. Just with different colour hair. Yeah. Like and so it's it's much more, yeah, he's he's the hero of this story and yeah. we're all going to get behind him. Um, and I think part of this as well is that – I don't think they ever had any intention of continuing. It was yeah. just going to be a one off thing. And so I'm not, I can't quite tell if it's a choice that they've gone, well, because we're just going to make one film, we'll make Clock
2: McLaughlin the hero that we can root for. Or if it was out of ignorance and they didn't quite. Look, understand. either way, it's, it's bad. Because I if they yeah. go one film, then they shouldn't be making it because it's disrespectful to the source material. And if you're ever going to do an adaption, even if you're going to make lots of changes, you should still be faithful to the core. Mm. elements of the source material and um and they're not basically the movie's fun it's explosive like very explosive it's it's um ridiculous it's quirky it's incredibly charismatic in the different characters and the different areas of the universe that we see but there's some core parts of the film they just get so wrong when it comes to the source material. Yeah. And the biggest one for me is Paul being celebrated as a hero. Hundred percent. Which he he is in the book, but he is in a way that makes you go, should he be? Yes. And there's no confusion in in this version. It's just like, yeah, Paul's the good guy the whole way. Um and let me ask you a question, John T. Please. If you went to a planet which was desert hot sun, very little water, basically the people are out in the sun all day, you know. What colour complexion would you say that the native people would probably have? Um, Look,
0: I'd say it'd be a pretty safe bet that
2: they wouldn't be white bread. Or if they were, would they be 100% exclusively (laughs) white people? (laughs) Yeah. Because, look, I only started this about halfway through the movie when I noticed it. From the point where I started looking, I didn't spot a single black person in yeah. this whole film. Yeah. And it's 1984. Like, it's not like this is made in the 60s when the book was written. Mm. And actually in the book, the Atreides are described as having dark olive skin. Yeah, um, Which, uh,
0: like, Oscar Isaac as the Duke, I think,
2: yes. is a really-
0: Great uh, casting like, for that.
2: Yes. And I, I I won't criticize the casting of Timothy Chalamet because he's just so perfect in the role. He's, a, he's great. But once again- Very white. He should be looking sort of Middle Eastern, which um, Oscar Isaac has that. I don't actually know- He's wh- a Ra- Iranian? Iranian, the right. Well, there you go. Like they, <laughs> don't quote me on that's that, sort yeah. of the part of the world that you'd expect these people to look like. Yeah. Um, but they're all white. Um, yes. So- There's some problems in this film, basically, Um, and, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I think uh, another huge problem with this one is
0: narratively, um, it doesn't do a good enough job of setting up all the complexities of of the narrative. Mm. So, like you said before, people that aren't intimately well-versed in Dune watch the movie and go, I have no idea what the hell
2: happened. Yeah, and which sorry to interrupt, I don't know. but like they have the overdubs, right? They have the exposition, right? Which to me makes it baffling that you have Princess Irulan, and you you, you decide to use her to explain things and make it more simple, yet you over-explain parts that aren't necessarily. Important or don't need to be explained because yeah. they're self-explanatory. As you watch the film, you don't need to know what's going to happen before it happens, and then you don't explain things, which would be so much more helpful. You know, mm-hmm. like and
0: the in contrast, and we I don't want to spend too much time because we'll do a whole episode on yeah. it. But like Timothy Chalamet's Paul, we learn about Arrakis as he does. Yes, so it's much more natural. Yes. And but I think that a big issue with this one is that it uses the language. ...of the source, which is important, mm. but so much using all these
2: terms that are new to a fresh viewer. Which is the one bit where I would say that is faithful to Frank Herbert's writing. Yes. Because that's what he does. Yes.
0: <laughs> but I think is an issue when adapting to a screen... Yes.
2: ...where you need to...
0: Uh, it's the classic, like almost at this point, stereotypical thing of show don't tell. Yeah. Which I think... is is a reductive way of talking about screenwriting anyway. But like that, that would be a a perfect example of telling instead of showing you have a face floating
2: on the screen, just
0: telling you all this information.
2: What what I will say is Princess Irulan's starting bit does explain the power structures very well. I thought that one bit was actually, I thought really helpful and quite useful. And they showed the different planets. Um, I still can't remember the name of the Atreides original planet. Um, but they introduce the Harkonnens and, and Giddy Prime, their home planet. They introduce Arrakis. They introduce um, the planet on which the um, Carinos, which is the Empress people reside on. I can't remember the name of that planet either, but that one's not as important because um, I don't think we... Caladan is the... Caladan, yes. Atreides. So that's the Atreides' home planet. And, and that is important because the Atreides planet Caladan is this... Um, it's supposed to be like this paradise. I thought the they depicted it very dark in this particular film, which I mean, I, I suppose they kind of did it in the Villeneuve movie as well. But the way that Frank Herbert describes it is it's kind of like this paradise planet mm. and it's got lots and lots of water. Yes. Um, which is supposed to be this big contrast between this planet that they go to um which is desert. Yes. And this idea of a desert planet and a lack of water is such an important part of the film. But sorry, sorry of the book, but that's one thing that I can understand. They didn't need to spend as much time on. So Mm -hmm. there are certain things that they chose not to spend as much time on, which I get like that. There are other things where I just think it's too important to the story to just leave out completely. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I um I did want to run through a few things unless yeah, you want to Yeah. I don't know. So Go a few it. things that I noticed while watching this film. Um the first one is um at six minutes and twelve seconds, um the spacing guild are carrying in the uh what do they call it? The uh Oh geez, I'm forgetting everything today. Basically the this the fish dude Um, the the axolotl tank that's what they call it navigator yeah so it's the guild navigator um, which they don't explain why they look like fish dudes essentially that vat that it's in is full of spice and it has basically just mutated him into a weird fishy guy weird fishy boy Um, and at 6 minutes 12 they're pushing him in and if you look to the left hand side of the screen one of the little people in the robes falls over oh really? (laughs) yeah I think they trip up on their own robe and you just see them go down. I and never noticed that. <laughs> yeah, <That's so> funny. <laughs> it's pretty. Amelia actually spotted it as we were watching with it. Another thing is, um, there's lots of dogs in this film. Yeah. And um, cats as well. That's yeah. not from- Yeah, we'll get to the cat. Um, <laughs> that's not from the source material. Um, I don't know what that is. I don't know if it was a topical thing. I don't know whether it was a thing to do with like the Queen's royalty and she had her corgis. Mm. And so the other royalties have to have their dogs. But- the carinos have these british bulldogs and the atreides have pugs yeah um and they pop up in the weirdest moments like there's a scene they where Arakeen is getting they carry tackled. them
0: into war as well yeah yeah yeah.
2: So, <laughs> so that's what i was gonna say so the scene where Arakine is getting um attacked and they're running out holding these little pugs yeah <laughs> and it's just a weird weird addition a like, weird detail who yeah. fought for that to be in there because i'm yeah. i'm I can't imagine that someone said like, oh yeah, they're just going to have pugs. And then everyone's like, yeah, cool. I feel like someone would have had to really push for that. And I want to know the reason why Mm. it was so important to have pugs in there. Um, But yes, Um, each, as I said before, each uh, different race has very distinct designs. Mm. The only question is, are they good designs? Um, so you'll notice that the mentats have these really bushy eyebrows. Mm -hmm. Um, they have this red stained on their lips. Yes. So they don't really explain that, but you do see, um, Piter, who is the mentat for the Harkonnens. Um, he at one stage is drinking this, I think it's called juniper juice or something like that. Essentially it's this juice that, um, hasn't been proven but is believed to increase the capabilities of Mentats, who effectively are human computers. They can do calculations um, and basically when fed data, they can give you logical answers based on the data. They're not flawless because if your data is incomplete or wrong, they'll come to a wrong conclusion as well. Um, There's this interesting idea that Mentats basically are made completely useless from the start of this film in the history of Dune canon because all these things that are never supposed to happen start happening and Mentats can't calculate things that aren't supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. So for example, suddenly people can see the future. That doesn't make sense in a Mentats mind. Uh, There's no data for that. There's no way to explain that. Suddenly like um, all all these things that aren't supposed to happen start happening effectively. And Mm so it's, it's interesting. Um, The guild navigators are incredibly creepy Yes, I thought they did a good job with that, given the, given how we see some other um, special effects in this film. Which, I think will we'll
0: definitely. Get I through. think they
2: did a good job <laughs> with the Guild navigators. Um, they are very creepy, and they are kind of accurate to what are described in the book. Um, not how I pictured them, but yeah, very creepy. Um, the shields. Let's talk about the shields. Oh, boy. <sighs> so
0: I, I want to ask you, how do you think they achieved the shields? So do you think, like, um, for people that maybe haven't seen this movie, if you're still listening, you don't care about spoilers, they're like, they kind of remind me of the sort of uh, visual effects that are in something like Tron, where it's very mm. geometric. And um, so if you were to guess, how would you say that, They achieved those effects. Like,
2: was it CGI? Was it? Um, I would say that they probably just um, superimposed Minecraft on top of it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They used a navigator to go to the future (laughs) and reference Minecraft. No, it's hand drawn. It's rotoscope. Like they—that was a choice that they were like. Because a lot of people assume, oh, it's just early. It's the dumbest choice ever.
2: It's the dumbest
0: choice. You can't see anything. It's like. Two actors giving a performance with just (sighs) like this silly looking box, what looks like early CGI, just completely covering them. It's Um, so
2: bad. Like, it's so bad. I'm sorry. It's terrible. It it was a terrible, terrible decision. And they should have spent some of the budget that they spent on Fishy Boy (laughs) on the freaking shields because holy cow, they look awful. And I'm just glad that we don't see them very much in this film because shields are an important part of Dune. And we see them a lot more in the Villeneuve movie than we see in this film. And thank God for that. Yeah, I, I, I have a hunch that I reckon
0: they looked at like uh, their, their options of like doing some more complex choreography and fight scenes, mm. but then realised what that was going to mean for doing
2: the shields and went, nah, we can't be. You, we can't see the choreography. Exactly. That's the problem. Exactly. <laughs> so There's a so scene of, yeah. where Duncan Idaho, um, who's played by Jason Momoa in the newer film, just like, jumps into these people later on. and uh, That's a topic. Duncan Idaho in this film. um, I actually think he's really good when we see him. He's like not a part of this film at all. And Mm. it's so disappointing because he's such an important character in in the book. Um, And in the series, he is one of the most important characters, um, even though he dies in the first one. Um, But yeah, like- I, I don't know. That 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 was weird. That was yeah. weird. Um, but yeah, Paul is also way too knowledgeable. He seems to know about everything. And I think this plays into the heroic aspect of him as a character. Like every time someone mentions something to him, he knows it. Some of that is canonical. Like the things like the still suit, for example, you'll see that in the Villeneuve movies as well. Um, he seems to know, like one of the the superstitions is that he he'll know your ways before like the Fremen believe, he'll know our ways before we've told him or something like that. Um, that taps into the whole thing with the um, Bene Gesserit. The book clearly tells us, basically, that what the Bene Gesserit do is they go to different um, different countries, different planets, and in these different communities, they basically create these myths and start religions. They engineer religions to begin in these communities um, so that if they ever need to, they can go to this place and become this messianic figure that they need to become. And so all these um, beliefs that the Fremen have about Paul were all created by the Bene Jesuit that's not mentioned at all so it sounds like it's a real religion which makes the it supports the messiah thing that paul actually is a messiah when in the book he is actually playing into that character and it it yeah. actually says that i'm not just this is not my opinion there's a scene where jessica says to paul you are playing into this so that they believe you're the messiah and paul basically turns around to her and says you're one to talk. You, your people created these rumors in the first place. Yeah. Once again, we see that Paul and Jessica are not good people necessarily. They're very complicated characters. Um, one thing I actually really appreciated was when Paul is testing out this, um, the weirding module, which we'll get to after this, which is this sound gun, um, he fights against this spinny robot thing. Um, Which seems super random, and if you've only read the first book, you'd be like, that is super random. However, I haven't seen anyone else talk about this, but that is very similar to a machine that's described in Dune Messiah, where Alia, who's a lot older at this point, is training with a knife, um, and she's fighting against this machine which says that it has different blades that jump out and spins around and has different speed settings and stuff like that. And that machine in the film reminds me a lot of what Frank Herbert is writing about and describing in Dune Messiah. Interesting. So I thought that was interesting. It could be a complete coincidence, but potentially Frank Herbert does know more about Dune, which makes it even more disappointing that he went with a heroic route. Mm. Um, sorry, Frank, um, I keep saying Lynch. Frank Herbert. Lynch, yeah. um, I don't know. It, it just seemed a lot to me to resemble the machine that, that is in Dune Messiah. And if he'd read Dune Messiah, he would know that Paul is not a good guy. I, I would say, just from my knowledge of Lynch and his
0: part in this, that it's almost certain that he hadn't and still hasn't read Messiah. So he, he's credited as writing the screenplay, and mm. adapting the novel. Um, so just coincidence then. So I think it's coincidence because a lot of what led to Dune being the movie that it is, is d- so David Lynch, to... to Fill in a little bit of context here. He'd, Please do. He'd made just take a
2: break from my just random facts. Uh, th- this
0: I'm is this is I'm learning a lot <laughs> in this. Um, he had made a race ahead, which took seven years or something. Was essentially a, a movie he made while studying. Yeah. Um, but then made um, the Elephant Man, which was nominated for a bunch of Oscars. Mm. Annie, Homs, uh, Annie Anthony Hopkins was in it. Mm. John Hurt, um, like really well received all of a sudden he has all this attention and producers and um production houses asking him yes to
2: make their movies for him which is why this big film dune that they wanted to do he was the one that they got to do it
0: yes and so i think and and he he talks about dune being the one failure that he had in his career because he wasn't in control the whole mm. time, and he, which is why the director's cut isn't the director's cut; it's the smithy cut because he just like wanted nothing to do with it anymore. Which, I, I, that's a whole other conversation about how much of a pretentious douchebag David Lynch can be, mm. um, and he, I think he would say that he's one of the most important directors. Oh, maybe I'm reading too much into that, but he seems like a a healthy amount of ego around <laughs> him as an artist at least healthy yes. at, at the very <laughs> least and so when when we talk about that sort of thing i i think I, I i'm almost certain that he hadn't read any i don't think he'd even read all of the book right um i think he took the core story And then just wanted to make a cool movie that he liked. But there were producers at every turn Mm. telling him to, yo, you got to make it this length. You got to introduce this thing. There's Mm. got to be a fight at this minute mark of the movie. There's all these things. And he let those things influence the movie. So once it was released, and I think it was trashed a little bit when it came out as well, he was just like, well, that lesson. Especially by the faithful fans of Dune. Yeah. Understandably so, right? And he took that as lesson learned never make a movie without Final Cut. And so he took a couple of years off and came back with Blue Velvet, which is the most David Lynch movie that mm. David Lynch has ever David right. Lynch'd. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's interesting hearing hearing from your perspective some of the some of the clash points between the novel and this film mm. um, when you can imagine a young-ish David Lynch on a film set with all these producers bossing him around because he's yeah. this young guy and just kind of, you know, water up to the neck and, and just- Plus he
2: probably, he probably at that stage, oh, I don't know. Uh, I was going to say might not have felt he had the authority yet, but we are talking about, as you said, a guy with a, at least healthy ego. <laughs> but I think, I think that didn't
0: arrive until later. Mm, so okay. he, he talks about the experience of making um, the elephant man. He was just getting denigrated by Hopkins the whole time. Right. Cause Hopkins yeah. was Hopkins. Mm, yes. And He's like, who's this young dude? He doesn't know what he's doing, yeah. And would be telling actors what to do <laughs> without Lynch's input like right. that. So I think he was still finding his okay. place, and then okay. kind of got kicked around a bit with Dune. Mm. less Interesting. Than went, went away and and everything since then is very because it, it, this feels a little bit like like it does. It's not that it doesn't feel like a David Lynch movie. Oh, it's very
2: characteristic of him in a lot absolutely. of absolutely, but yeah.
0: it does feel like a David Lynch movie that has four or five people standing over him with a stick going, you've got to make it this long and you've got to cut this bit out. And Mm. Yeah, so what what else have you got for me? So
2: one of the best things, I think, about the Denny Villeneuve version that we've seen was the relationship between Paul and Leto. It was incredibly moving at the, the start of the film, especially that scene where Leto says to Paul, um you could be anything and you'd still be everything I need you to be. My mm. son, like yeah. that bit, I was just like, oh. <laughs> yeah, that's a great moment. Yeah. Um, which I think was in the trailer as well.
0: Which, oh, was which, it? which sold me early on. Right, like, yeah. They're doing this I probably. mean, it's,
2: it's Oscar Isaac. He's a, just, he's phenomenal. Um, but yeah, I, I just thought that was brilliant, that relationship. And it was just complete opposite in this film. They had no chemistry whatsoever. Like they tried to show that Paul was in awe of his father- but like no one cares when Leto dies in this film. Yeah. Um, you do care when Oscar Isaac dies, especially given he's naked and you want to keep seeing him naked on screen <laughs> and then they kill him and it's just like, damn, no more naked Oscar Isaac. Have you seen scenes from a marriage? No, I haven't. Okay. Is he naked in it? Yeah. All right, cool. <laughs> I'm married by the way, straight as well. But um, yeah, uh, Oscar Isaac, he's uh, the exception, you know. Caladan. Um, uh, I already said that. Um. Okay. No man has ever been tested with the box. So the Gom Jabbar test. False. <laughs> it's not true. Men have been tested <laughs> with the box and they've all failed. That's the important bit. Mm. That other men have tried to go through the testing to become the Kwisatz Adarak, which is the, um, the Benny Jesuits ultimate human, basically. Their version of the Ubermensch. Mm. Um Effectively, the Benny Jesuit have this breeding program where they pair people together. Oh, excuse me. They pair, um, they find capable men, essentially, and they breed them with um, who they believe will be compatible Benny Jesuit sisters. Um, and then they breed their children with other ones. There's a lot of incest in this universe, but effectively, if the world's been around for 10,000 years, which is actually, no, it's a lot longer than that because. So it says in the year 10,050 or something like that, that's actually that year, how we have AD and BC. Yeah. There's this thing called um, AG after Guild. So yeah. when the Spacing Guild was invented in the Dune universe, they restarted the years yeah. and the Spacing Guild was invented in like, I, I don't know, but this is a long, long time in the future. Um, and humans basically have been having babies for quite some time it's gotten a bit incestuous, all right? Yeah. Um, but effectively, the the Bene Jesuit are trying to breed this perfect human by combining all these different traits and mutations that humans naturally create over time. Um, and they believe that they can create this ultra being, the Kwisatz Adarak, or Hadarak, I don't know exactly how to say it, but um, it's a male who has the same powers as a female Benny Jesuit, and they can see into the place where we do not dare look. I will get into that in a little bit because I think that's funny, even if it is accurate. Um, but yeah, there have been other men who've been tested with the box and they've failed, which is why they've been killed mm. um, because they have been considered an animal by the Bene Jesuit rather than a human who can control their impulses, which is interesting, given what we know about human beings. Um, there's also this weird thing where... The Reverend Mother Mohaim, who is the one that visits Caladan, she acts as if she's just found out Jessica has had a, a son. Mm. Like, I, I understand there's a scene's probably supposed to be more for exposition to be like, oh yeah, they weren't happy that she had a son. But it's just like, Jessica, you had a son? And it's just like, they knew that already. Yeah. So I I don't know, poor writing again. Um, the voice, the use of the voice, I think Denny did it fantastically in the yeah. new movie. I obviously it's modern age. They've got different special effects, but it's audio editing at the end of the day. And in 1984, there was some incredible audio editing out there. We can see it in music. And sound is a huge part of what makes yeah. David Lynch movies. They could have done better. Cool. They yeah, could have done better. I agree. Yeah. Um, yeah, was sounded dumb. Basically in my notes it says the voice sounds dumb. Um, However, what I will say about this Gom Bar scene is I actually really like most of the dialogue in this, in this particular scene. Um, I, I just really like the way that it was written. And it was one of the few places in the film that I can actually say that because mm. in general, I think the screenwriting was... It felt lazy to me because it felt like it was adapted from the book almost to the letter, but just done badly. Mm. Um, so yeah, it felt lazy, but in this scene... It wasn't actually to the letter. They added some new stuff in, but it felt very faithful and appropriate. Probably because in this scene, even in the book, we are supposed to be like, Paul's the good guy, Moheim's the bad woman. Um, but I thought they captured her really well in that particular scene. So credit where credit's due there. Um, another thing is I just feel like so much of this film is dictated by how much they needed to squeeze in, yeah. which is something that you said 100%. before. Like there's so much in this film to squeeze in. And so I think some of the omissions and just the poor, apparently poor writing is just down to the fact that this is an incredibly complex story that they've tried to squeeze into a short period of time. Um, I also think they foreshadow Leto's death in an unnecessary way. It's quite subtle in the book. Like it's a potential thing from happening, but there's one bit where Paul was basically just like, my father's going to die. Mm. And I understand they're trying to show how he can have prescience, but I just thought that was, well, I mean, I guess it doesn't really matter because no one cares. <laughs> yeah, it's not
0: treated, like when when Oscar Isaac dies in-,
2: in Yeah, the, you care. It's, it's a huge moment for yeah. the audience. And they wouldn't want to spoil that. Whereas in this one, I don't even know the actor's name, but like- I can't remember. No one but cares when he dies. Like- and it, but it doesn't
0: feel like Paul cares that much either. No. Like it's not handled very well at all. No, no. For yeah. a moment that's meant to be like such a key point in Paul. Yes. At, as a character growing. Um, and, and structurally what the new one does really well is that it, from a narrative perspective, structurally it's a bit odd. But from a Paul perspective, it is a perfectly structured film. Mm-hmm. And his the death of... Um, Oscar Isaac, and then him yes. being forced to fight someone to the death right at the end. Like, that's the perfect structural background which is for that movie. As it should be. As it yeah. should be, but this one, it's treated as just this thing that happens at the beginning that yeah. kind of
2: maybe contributes well, to the narrative, I think but not the really. only thing it contributes is it's like that's what Paul's reason to get revenge is, yeah. basically, is that they killed his father, um, which is true, but in the source material, it's like that's what – Begins Paul's journey, mm. and then over time it it morphs into something different. Whereas in this, it's like, well, I don't know what it's like. It's unclear, yeah. really. And it's unclear and what's motivating Paul apart from just his hatred of the Harkonnens.
0: And and because he is painted as a hero, yeah, it, it's so he, unambiguous. Well, he doesn't need a, a, a need because it's just they're the
2: bad guys, and exactly. I'm the good
0: guy. Exactly. Whereas in in the source and in the new in the newer one. um He struggles with that for most of the movie. Yes. He's still struggling with it when the movie finishes. It's his dad.
2: And they have an amazing relationship. Yeah. And he is someone, his father is someone who he looks up to tremendously. um, And it makes sense that it would be a massive driver for him. But he's just this stoic,
0: bright, like wide-eyed hero. And it doesn't seem to affect him.
2: He's not even wide-eyed. He's like squinty-eyed all the time. (laughs) Like he knows something you don't. And it's like- Ah, oh, it's yeah. just cringe. I
0: love Karl McLaughlin, but yeah. I, I think this was, if not his first role, his first I major role. I think it role. was his first, yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. I, I love him, but
0: yeah, it's, it's...
2: Well, I haven't seen Twin Peaks, so I haven't had that... Um, I haven't been exposed to him in a... a, a uh, what am I saying? In a story where his character is appropriate. And, and he does do other characters. Mm. So
0: he's... I mean... We're not going to talk about well, maybe we will talk about Showgirls on another episode, but like his character in Showgirls mm. is the complete opposite right. of the Cooper character in yeah, Twin Peaks. Right. And that's part of why he chose it. Um but he, he is actually and, and in the new Twin Peaks, he plays about four different characters, mm. all of which are completely different. And so okay. he has this really great range. Um but yeah, it's it's he's he's so in in the popular knowledge of who yeah. Carl McLaughlin is, he's the yeah, Twin yeah. Peaks guy, yeah, yeah. Um, so he's really, really good, but he's just—I don't know what. If it was just a little bit deer in the headlights,
2: with Look, this, he, but he, no, he, he plays the character really well. It's just the wrong character. Yeah, yeah. you know. Um, and as a young actor, you're just going to take your direction and yeah. And he's perfect for that role. Yeah, but it's just as I said, it, it's the wrong role. Mm. Um, and that's
0: more of a structural thing with the the movie as a rather whole, rather than a problem with him with as an him, actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: totally. So let's talk about the Baron. Yeah. Um, the most eccentric character of the whole film. Um, But I want to talk about what is faithful and what's not. Yeah. And then talk about what is good about it not being faithful and what's not good about it not being faithful. So as we said earlier, yes, the Baron is incredibly overweight um, and he needs suspensions to help him lift his body weight. Um, He's wearing a fat suit in the film. Yeah. Yeah. I've never seen a more obvious fat scene. <laughs> but, but I don't know. He <laughs> looks like um in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory when that girl gets blown up into a massive ball. Oh, Beauregard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. In general, he's just too much. Okay. Um, the, in the book, the Baron actually has a very deep voice. He was actually well known for having a – a fantastic baritone singing voice, which is interesting when he was younger. So he's got a a fairly deep voice. um, Whereas in this one, he just screams and cackles the whole time. He is an incredibly intelligent and tactical guy. Um, He's not to be trifled with. He's not crazy. This guy is sharp. Like Mm. he, and he's, he's charming as well. Like he, he only starts to lose his charm once he starts losing control in the movie. And He's, once he realises he doesn't actually know what's going on, he becomes more um, out of control and flustered and bumbling like he is in the entirety of this film. Um, but this film just paints him to be a complete maniac. Yeah. Where he's much more of a... Um, I, wouldn't, I was going to say a Thanos, but I wouldn't say a Thanos because he's he doesn't have a good cause necessarily. He is after power. But in the sense that Thanos is a very composed villain... He's much more of a Thanos than like a green goblin continuing with sure. the superhero sure. analogies, yeah. you know. He's not a crazy maniac. He's a guy who's risen to power for a reason. Yeah. He's incredibly ruthless. Um, and yeah, he basically, the crazy one in the in the relationship or in, in that house is Piter, who is his, as I said, his Mentat, who plays more of the calm collected one, but they actually do a pretty good job with Pytor. He tries to claim um, that it was his plan, which is what he does in the book. Pytor has a huge ego. He's what's called a twisted mentat in the in the the books, basically in the series. Mentats are developed um, part of their their training is a lot of moral stuff. They they shouldn't really it shouldn't be possible for a mentat to give advice for evil. Mm. But then there's this other people who aren't in the movie who figure out a way to create what's called twisted mentats, which are mentats who are basically able to be bad, yeah. bad dudes. Um, I think the the, the Baron is a, a really great example of
0: something that I think I love, not just like, I think I love about this movie mm. is that they commit so hard to the weirdness <laughs> Yeah. Of, of of but also it's really I, I find because I, I saw this really young I actually found it really upsetting because right. like all, all like the endless sea of cubicles that they're in yeah and how gross his face is yeah I don't know what
2: that's about really
0: like, I I just think I, I the what all I could probably attribute it to is like David Lynch committing to yeah I'm gonna make this really weird and bizarre yeah and no because, it's iconic for sure yeah, yeah whereas in stark contrast to the Villeneuve one where everything is treated as normal and flat, which works just like it's... Yeah. That's They're committing to that. They're I both think that scary works really in different well. ways, yeah. But air, all the weird stuff in Dune is present, but it's presented flat and, and just like it's not because that's what the world is. And no yeah. one walks around going, well, isn't this crazy? Because that's just what their world is. Whereas the Lynch one is... Like that scene where he's floating around laughing and screaming, like it is so bizarre and so wacky. Um, and it, like, they, they just commit to it. No, no. To such a degree yes. that it's so memorable. And, yes. like, Sting with the wings on his underpants. Or like, yeah. that, that's another thing where it's just, they commit to such a. It's it's borderline surrealism. Like, it's, oh, it's for sure. so no, sad. It's so
2: random. Yeah. Um, and there are definitely scenes in this film which are deeply surrealism. Like, his. When I Paul, mean this, the space travel sequence. Yeah, absolutely. Bizarre. Yeah, absolutely. And also, when Paul's having his um, visions, they do it in mm. a way that is very um, psychedelic. Yeah. Which I mean, I guess it's like, very—it's literally psychedelic. Like Paul and it's is, reminiscent
0: yeah. of uh, Lynch's early shorts as well, where he was just messing around right. with like double exposure and because yeah, he, right. he started life as as a painter and an artist. Oh, okay. So there's lots of really cool like tactile effects in yeah. his movies that are all. Hand drawn and very,
2: the visions are really interesting because they use water in the visions as if to say it's a really important part of it. Except the rest of the movie doesn't really reference it. Yeah, apart from when it starts raining at the end and it's like, see the water, yeah. and it's just like <laughs> you haven't earned that, mate. Yeah, <laughs> no, I agree. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's he's he is a bad dude in the books. I they just went a completely different direction, and that's fine. I mean, they've gone a different direction again with. Um, with Stellan Skarsgård's version in the Villeneuve version, he is—we're not really sure what he is right now. Um, mm. He's scheming, we know that, but the most—but we just keep seeing him bathe he, in black goo. And basically. he's much
0: more physically intimidating.
2: Yes, um, which
0: the, uh, I can't remember the actor's name plays it in this one, but he's not mm. physically intimidating. No, no, not at, at all. all.
2: Not at all. Also, all the all the um, Harkonnens are uh, gingers. Yeah, that's a weird. Detail, but- dunno, dunno. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sting's got hair still. Um, <laughs> I wonder if it's a wig. I don't know I'm when sure. he lost his hair. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to look it up. But he's bald as a as a bald man now. Um, bald as a bald man. Nice one, Jack. Good okay. Yeah. Um, they, yeah, they make him seem like an idiot and that's the one bit that I don't like about it. I don't mind all the eccentric stuff, but he just seems stupid. Um, the thing about him having a thing for young boys- Mm-hmm. That is actually faithful to the source material. Um, Yeah. He's got a, a in fact, there's heavy suggestion in the book that, and also in the film, that he has a thing for his nephew, Fade Routher. Yeah. And we see that in the film where he sees Fade Routher in his underwear and he is kind of biting his lip. Yeah. Horny Baron. Um,
0: There's some weird sexual energy in this movie. Yes.
2: um, But that is actually faithful. Yeah. Um, I couldn't exactly give you a reason why Frank Herbert went for that. I think it's all part of the nuanced character playing with some things that are like... um, Well, partly it's just to make him despicable um, in a way that isn't directly related to him doing bad things. But just the fact that he... Has pedophilic tendencies, um, and at a time where you know homophobia was a much bigger thing than it is now, the fact that he would not only like young people, but that he'd like young boys, is just adds to that thing of how despicable is this Baron. Yeah. Um, and yes, and it's his nephew as well, which makes it even weirder. But yeah, I just wanted to point that out. That that's not a David Lynch thing. It doesn't surprise me that David Lynch decided to use it. But that is actually reflective of the source material that the Baron is, yeah. Um.
0: If there's one thing that Lynch is good at, it's depicting his villains as being villains. <laughs> so yeah. So that doesn't surprise me that he's lent into that a little bit in depicting the Baron.
2: Uh, yeah. Um, they don't directly show it really with the little boy. Um, it shows that he kills him, but it doesn't really show... It. Like, it's sexual, but it's, yeah, he like... It explicitly says in the films that he, like, forcefully. Well, he rapes young boys in the in the Harkonnen yeah. thing. And there's also no women, um, which is also faithful. We don't mm. seem to know where women are in yeah. with the Harkonnens. It's quite strange, but yeah, um, that's also faithful. So yeah, it, it's a very weird scene. The skin thing is, I don't know what that's about. Um, the bathing thing as well. Mm. The, see, I might be wrong here. You've read the book, right? A while ago. Okay. Do you remember anything about the bathing stuff in the books? I don't, but don't take that as evidence. That because the I book. don't either. And I might have this wrong, but like it would surprise me if it's not because both films have used it, that he's mm. bathing in this black goo. Mm-hmm. But it, yeah. could,
0: it could be that the- the Villeneuve one has actually taken it from, maybe, from maybe the Lynch he has. film. Maybe yeah. he has. I'd have to well, I don't
2: it. remember that in the book. Maybe it is, but it's not a big thing. Mm. Where it is seemed to be a big thing in both. um, Yeah, both. Bu- oh, actually, no. I'm pretty sure he goes into it after the poison attack. Yeah. To heal himself. I'm pretty sure he does that, but that it's not something out. that yeah. he does frequently. Anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, one thing that I thought was it was was um the guild navigators shooting energy out of their holes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I it's it's very bizarre. I don't know what's happening there. It's very bizarre, and I I, I again I would just assume that that's one of those things that when Lynch read. A passage or yeah. was told that that was a thing he had to include that wouldn't it, be cool
2: if they shot stuff out of their
0: holes he just had this image in his brain and he's he's very much <laughs> like if you've got an idea stay true to the idea yeah. so he's probably just had that idea in his head and gone well that's what I'm doing yeah um, it's it's striking and it looks like in terms of the effects it I think it, I think it's a cool effect but I actually think it is a little bit distracting Ding.
2: I don't know what it's supposed to be doing. Yeah, because- So it's, let me explain how the Guild Navigators Wait, yeah, actually that's, work. That's what so I was going to so ask. Essentially, yeah. the Spice gives them the ability to see forward in time, but just very shortly, not like Paul, where he can see like potentially years and years ahead. They can see a split second in, in front. And the problem with them um, folding space is there's a risk that they could potentially hit something on the other side- And so effectively when they created this new form of travel, what would happen is every now and then someone would, a spaceship would open up into a moon or something like that and just everyone would die. So they needed a way to be able to see into the future. And so they use the spy so that the space navigators can actually briefly see into the future to ensure that they're traveling safe effectively. That's why they have the weird fishy boys. Yeah. Um, Who were once humans. Well, they are yes, humans, but they, they're just they are mutated. yeah they mutated into into weird fishy boys which doesn't um, come
0: across in in the movie no, it, they just wheel out this just thing weird fishy boys yeah. yeah
2: um the that's one thing that I will say as well the power structure's off there it feels like the space and guild has way too much power in this film like they do have power but not enough to just be rolling into the emperor and just telling him what's what mm. like that felt a bit too much like they do have enough power to make a point to the emperor but not enough to just tell them what to do like that's and then the Benny Jesuits seem a little bit too subservient to the emperor as well but anyway that's just a quick thing um yeah so i i don't really understand why they're shooting things out of their holes just i i think it's just a thing that lynch was like wouldn't it be cool, cool. if all right uh, <sighs> thanks david
0: all right um, it's it's not it's not it it, it doesn't it, it isn't depicted in a way that suggests that it is a part of the, the mechanics of space travel.
2: No, it's just a random effect. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, I've, got a, I've got a few more things and then maybe we can speak more broadly. Sure. I'm sorry, this is boring for some people. These are just nerdy things. Um, Arrakis- hey, This is the
0: nerdiest podcast Okay, ever, great. So.
2: Arrakis, very cool design. I really liked how they did Arrakis. Um, Yui, Dr. Yui. Can I come back to the yes, Arrakis thing? sure.
0: One of the things that I think that this does better than the Villeneuve one- um, Arrakis, when they're, like, travelling with the Fremen at the end, mm. looks and feels really dangerous. And, mm. like, there's lots of, like, cliff faces and they're walking around these precarious... Mm. Like, whereas in the new one, they're just kind of walking in a pretty flat desert. Yeah, right. Um, and I, think I, I don't remember if that's a thing in the book where it's it's a really dangerous place to travel. But I think re I, rewatching this, I, I was struck by how when they get to spending time with the Fremen, it feels really dangerous and wild. Mm. Um, Whereas, I don't know where they shot the, the, I think it was in Jordan, the Villeneuve one, but Mm. like it just kind of feels pretty flat.
2: I think in the Villeneuve movie, he's trying to show how far away from everything they are, which is probably Mm. why he's gone for a flatter. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. um, There's just something I really appreciated about this one. I guess we should talk about the worms as well. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, the Worms look fantastic in the Ville News version. Um, They don't look bad in this. They don't look bad. I think the thing that it doesn't... So, the thing that the
0: Villeneuve 1 captures is the scale. Yeah, like but it's are.
2: you can't because all the, the, the CGI or the, the special effects tricks that we use in the 80s and around that time, a lot of them use tricks of scale. Yes. Um, like you look at the early horror movies and they mm. like make these little sets of towns and then yeah. put a cockroach on there. And it's yeah, like, yeah. it's a giant cockroach, you know? Yeah. And they're doing that with this as well. Um, and so I understand that they can't get the scale perfectly yeah. right. Because I think the one thing that I notice. And again,
0: I don't think this is a fault of the movie. I think this is just a product of when the movie was made. Because there are some effects, and there's one, there's some forced perspective stuff that I want to talk about later that is mind blowing. But when the there's there's two shots in particular where the worms come up out of the sand, Mm. and they're miniatures, um, which means that the sand feels like really big sand. (laughs) Is the best I can describe it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and it it that kind of those moments are the ones where it kind of pulls me out of it a bit right. because I'm like, that just looks like a miniature coming up out of the sand. Yeah. As opposed to a massive fricking worm.
2: I, I suppose my, uh, my expectations were set low by the shields. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. <laughs> that is very fair. So it's just like, Oh, it looks remotely like what, what it's supposed to look like. Great job. Um, yeah. <laughs> maybe that was the tactic behind it to make the worms look, make us think the worms are great. Yeah. Um, But yeah, anyway, um, Yui, yeah, Doctor Yui. So, I don't think Villeneuve did a good version with Yui, a good job with Yui, and I don't think that Lynch did a good job with Yui either. Both of them, it feels like they didn't give his character enough time to really, for us to feel his motive and understand it. And especially in this film, it's like I, I don't know. It's it's like. He feels no remorse about it, whatever. Like he he says to to Leto when he attacks him, he's just like, "I have ended the Atreides or something like that. Mm. And then the next scene, we see him. He's like crying from guilt. And it's like, yeah. you didn't seem to feel that guilty when you were killing him, like, <laughs> or like not killing him, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, uh, and, and and then the weirdest bit is he rocks up at like the the Hark- Harkonnen's place, and then the Baron's just like we have your wife. And he's just like, she's alive? And it's just like, why are you doing this if you don't think your wife's alive? The whole point of this plot is supposed to be, he thinks that the the Harkonnens have his wife alive. And so his way of getting to her is by like, why are you doing it if you don't think she's alive? (laughs) Yeah, doesn't quite. And I, Uh. I, I do
0: think the new one does it. A better job. Still not great though. Still not great. Yeah. But there is a real sense of like when he's explaining the tooth to... The tooth. Um, <laughs> where he's like apologizing to him profusely yeah. while explaining like, while, while yes. I have done this terrible thing for, to yes. you. Yes, I'm giving you a chance to I'm kill I'm giving the you a chance to get back yeah. at him. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. Um, no, I, I agree with that. I think the the main thing that they missed out in the new one was purely... Um, I, I feel like it would have been such an easy addition as well. Is in the book from like the very start, um, we find out that there's a traitor, mm. um, which the um, this version, the 1984 version, does actually do. The Lynch version, um, it does actually have Baron say, I have it, I have someone on the inside. The new version doesn't do that. And I feel like it would be such an easy thing to just lay the groundwork that there's a traitor amongst the Atreides. Because then you're trying to figure out who it is. Yeah, which like, is what yeah. the book does, you know. Yeah. And we actually find out pretty quickly that it's Yui mm. and then we see all the lead up to it and are like, oh, um, this is interesting. Why would he be doing this? And you kind of figure it out as he slowly reveals his motives and it just makes it feel more meaningful, which it doesn't feel in this at all. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's that's my thing on on Yui. Um there, so Paul and Jessica are in the sand and Paul describes to Jessica, we must walk like the locals do. We walk without rhythm. They then proceed to walk with rhythm. <laughs> it's just these kind of things. It's like you've made the effort to say this thing. And then you literally just have them walking just normally. Like, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah so, cause the, uh, they explain it in the new one, right? It's, a way of walking that
2: imitates well. Basically, the worms are attracted to anything that is rhythmic. Yeah. So the whole point of them walking over the sand, if they walk normally, a worm can be attracted to the rhythmic walking. But if they walk without rhythm, then the worm won't be attracted to it. That's why they use the thumpers, which just hit the sand with a rhythmic noise, and it draws the worms. Yeah. But yeah, the the Fremen walk in a way because everyone's like, how do, how do the Fremen actually travel across the sand without getting Killed by worms, um, and it's this particular way of walking that they do, so that they're not being tracked by it. Yeah. And you either don't say that, and just have them walk. Yeah. Yeah. Or for some reason you include the line, and then have the walk normally. Like
0: I just because you've laid the groundwork for oh if you walk normally the worms will come and find you yes, and eat you but yeah. then they just do it anyway
2: yeah
0: yeah uh. yeah yeah I I. I don't know what I can attribute that to, but it's um I think it's just poor filmmaking <laughs> to be honest. Like yeah, I don't know. It it's it's just one of a number of things that comes across to me as too many different people trying to have input. And it's yeah. one of those little but important details that got missed.
2: Yeah. 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 Know. Anyway, um I actually don't mind the music most of the time. Um I actually great. I think the score is pretty cool. Um and then that electric guitar comes in. Um and okay. it, once again it's just this this hero thing like a hero with his electric guitar like but I really like the score and then this <laughs> and it's just like no eh, please no but anyway the the score most of all I I, I Pretty like, pretty much like it. But do you know who did the score? Um, I want to say yes, but I, it's not coming to mind right now. Toto. Oh no, I didn't know that.
0: So that's where the, the oh, okay. <laughs> that's where that guitar comes right, from. Right there, you go. Yeah.
2: Ah. It's a very eighties thing. Ah,
0: to do, have a rock band score score a movie, um, which makes the that rock opera esque yes, music at it the it end make very, a whole lot of sense. It is very rock opera. Um, yeah. But yeah, I agree. It's it just plays into Paul's a hero. Look how awesome he is.
2: Yes, yeah. Um. So, John T., where where is the place that is terrifying to women that only men can look at? Um, it's the future. Is that right? Yeah, but what, what what do you think? Is that a reference to something like the place that is terrifying to women that only a man can look at? I I I don't know. I'm trying to think of. This feels like a leading question. Well, I I'm sure there was there's there's something we could lead into, but maybe there isn't. I'm trying to think. Like a man cave? No? <laughs> maybe not. Anyway. It's really weird wording. Um it's worded a lot better in the book. Okay. It feels like David Lynch was being suggestive with it the way that he right. worded it. Right, okay. I don't know. I just wrote it down, it struck me. Anyway. Milking yeah. cats. Yes. <laughs> Um, So this whole thing with the capture, um, uh, the Mentat, uh, uh, Sufa Howitt, and he's the Atreides Mentat. Um, In order to keep him faithful to the Harkonnens, the Harkonnens poison him. And then the Harkonnens hold a antidote so that he couldn't go too far. He couldn't run away. Otherwise he would die. David Lynch had the brilliant idea. Let's not just have an antidote. Let's have the antidote being cat's milk. Yep. Yep.
0: <laughs> it's just one of those weird things where I think it's just Lynch, Ben Lynch, and he just had this crazy idea, and it somehow made it through production. Yes. Also, um, when they walk in, um, oh, it's a cow upside down. Yeah, right? I was wondering about it. Well, it's a cow, but it looks like a horse. Yeah, but then one of them like rips the yeah. So that's out.
2: um freaking um uh Raban beast Raban, mm. yeah who is basically just the stupidest character ever to live um he he's played by Dave Batista in the new film, yeah um and he's scary in this film he's just a brute and shouldn't even be in the film I don't think it's just stupid mm. like uh, uh, yeah, it's annoying yeah because that, that's just straight up surrealism yeah, it's just dumb anyway it strikes um, me as the sort of thing that
0: uh, Jodorowsky would have done. Like mm. that, the sort of because I don't know if you're familiar with Jodorowski's filmography, but like the Holy Mountain and El Topo and a couple of no. other things are like super psychedelic and right. dream influenced. Um, that like the, the milking the cat and the upside down cat, like that, that's yeah, seems to me like that would have been at home in that movie that never got made. Yeah. Um but it Just does weird. happen with the same it it it's in that like space of the film that's already being they're leaning into the weirdness of it.
2: Yeah. Do you, So it sort of works. There's this one thing about Raban that I thought was interesting though. I was watching the film and it occurred to me. It somehow links to Jane's Bond. Can you figure it out? Oh god. Uh No. So Inspector Yeah. There's a character played by Dave Batista, and this character has um, prosthetic metal nails and he uses these nails to push his thumbs into his victims' eyes and yeah. blind them. Yeah. Now in June, Raban does this exact same thing. There you go. And in the new film, Raban is played by Dave Batista. Dave Batista. I just go. thought that
0: was interesting. That is interesting. I hadn't made that connection.
2: Yeah, anyway. Fun thing. Go. Um that's the end of my notes. So uh,
0: thank you because I, <laughs> I, I learned so much going through <laughs> that because um, I have seen this a couple of times and I've read the book twice, I think. Um, th- there's so much discourse around this movie and yes. it being terrible. Yeah. How do you feel like if you were to someone ask you like, do you like this movie? Weighing up all the pros and cons, how do you feel about in jo- And with with the... Um, uh, the context that you are a huge book fan. Yeah, look- As an adaptation, not just as a movie by yeah, itself. Yeah, yeah,
2: Um, I, I think that that's the thing, is it comes to when whenever you're looking at an adaptation, you have to view the adaptation in two ways. How good is it as an adaptation and how good is it as a standalone piece? Mm. As an adaptation, it's horrific. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Te- it is terrible. Yeah. Um, they, in my opinion, they just miss pretty much every core theme of- what Frank Herbert writes about, they not only miss it, they run counter to it a lot of the time. Um, And all the exploration of race, all the exploration of, excuse me, of um, messiahs being good or bad things, all these things are just completely missed and they just go for a basic space opera, Star Wars, bad Star Wars, basically. Um, which just supports these, this idea that some Star Wars fans have that um, Star Wars was not at all influenced by Dune, which is just so sanctimonious. I mean, everything sci-fi after Dune was yeah. influenced by Dune. Anyway, um, as a film, I don't think it's good, but I have a soft spot for it. Mm. Um, it's one of those films which is just... It, why well, It's just so eccentric and so detailed in areas where you don't feel like you need detail but they're just interesting you, like I, I don't know it's I, I'm reticent to say that I like the film but I don't not like the film it's it's an yeah. experience that I'm glad that I've had um, let's put it this way I rewatched it for this episode I don't think I'm going to be watching it again anytime soon but I am glad that I've watched it and it gives me a better appreciation of the source material even if that's sometimes by doing the direct opposite of it. Um, yeah, look, as a standalone film, I think it's fun. I, and I think it's explosive and um, rock and roll. And I don't think that there's too much to think about with it. But yeah. but what I will say is that that is coming from someone who understands the law of Dune. And if you don't, then I can see how you get lost so easily. And yeah. as I said, I was watching this with Amelia and sometimes she's just like, What the hell's going on? And I know what's going on because I know what they're trying to do at certain points. Yeah. But without what without knowing the source material first, I would have been like, This is the stupidest film of all time. It makes no sense. Why are they milking cats? Yeah. So I, I watched this before I read the book. Right. Tell me about it. And it made
0: zero sense. Did it intrigue you or did it just go, This is stupid? I, I was really young. So right. I think I was not only young enough that some of the stuff I found really upsetting, yeah, but also I wasn't old enough to even understand it as a bad movie. Like <laughs> I wasn't able to watch it and go, "That's really interesting," because I can sort of tell what they're trying yeah. to do. Or I, or I was, I think I was like eight, and I'm Whoa, watching it going, "Too like, young for this, man. I, I, this is not connecting with yeah. me at all." Um, I read the book when I was twelve, I think. And the first time I tried, I got a hundred page, pages in oh, and, and yeah. gave up. Yeah, yeah. And then tried again it's and got dense. about the same length. And I think by the time I was thirteen or fourteen, I'd actually read the whole thing. Yeah. Um. And then watched the movie again much later when I discovered David Lynch and was like, mm. "How is this? It like it makes no sense to me that this is a movie in David Lynch's filmography." Mm. And I, now watching it now, I actually have a same. I have a soft spot for it because I read the book. And I have a deeper understanding of what it's attempting to do, but I actually love watching it. I don't know, watch I don't watch it often, but I when I do watch it, it's so fascinating to me just because it's such um, an outlier as a David Lynch fan. Right, it's such an outlier That's perspective in his that I just don't have. Yeah, and I love watching it from that perspective because I just it's so fascinating to me. There are so many choices, and even just the choice. To make this movie, after after saying no to Return of the Jedi, mm. why this movie he he thought was a good idea, but when Return of the Jedi wasn't. I mean, thank the Lord he didn't direct Return of the Jedi. I think that would have been <laughs> even more of a disaster. Um, uh-huh. But like some of the stuff in there, I love. There's some of the some of the big wide shots of like, um, uh, with like spaceships and all the miniature people
2: from like yeah. huge huge perspective. There's like. Which I, I wonder if um, that's another area that Villeneuve potentially got some inspiration for because quite possibly because yeah. he does and you mentioned this earlier he does such a good job of showing scale yeah. in this film. There's certain things where you're just like, "Holy cow, is that big?" Like when the spaceship first lands on Arrakis, and then, well, actually, first of all, you see the massive like thing in space, and then these tiny mm. little. Tiny little spaceships come out of it, and then you see one of them land on Arrakis, and you're like, "This and it's thing huge. is." <laughs> yeah. And then you're like, "Wait, so how big was that?" <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Uh, so I wonder if that was like seeing what David Lynch was was trying to do with all the effects that he had at his disposal. Yeah, obviously, um, you know, forty years earlier. Mm. Like, yeah.
0: So there's one shot in particular which um, I don't know if you've seen. Um, Oh, I can't even remember the name of the YouTube channel now. There are a bunch of like VFX guys that do VFX artist react no, videos. No. Um, they're really interesting because they break down. They're not just like, oh, look how bad these effects are. They're actually effects guys. So they go, this is why this effect is good. This yeah, is right. how they achieve it. This is why this effect is bad. Um, and they've they done an episode on this movie. Interesting. And the stuff that What do they, they think of the shields? <laughs> Well, they they all assumed that it was early CGI, but it's not. It's yeah. all hand drawn. Right. So they're all like, "Why did they make that choice? <laughs> like, if it's hand drawn, you can do anything." It just yeah. seemed it aesthetically, it looks like it was bound by the technological, uh, like inability at yeah. the time. Yeah. but they had no reason. Yeah, it's yeah. it's bizarre. But there's there's these massive, big establishing shots where what they've actually done, is made miniature sets with models with a hole in the set and set up the camera with the model. So it's like up on a scaffold and then set up a real set with people and actors and extras like ages and ages away so that the real life people on a set lines up with the hole on the miniature. Right. And so some of those big establishing shots you go, right when you look at it, you go, hang on, how did they actually get, that, like, those many extras on that huge ah, set. so,
2: like, the scene when they're in the um, in the cave and Paul is addressing all the Fremen? Yep. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, right. Um, and there's one where there's a bunch
0: of people coming out of a ship as well. Yeah, right. There's, like, the door of the ship and the archway, and that's it. Yeah. And then they've got the rest of it is, like, miniatures, but they've, uh. sh- in camera, they've blended the two. Oh. Uh. And it's really impressive, but then once you notice it, uh, you right. can see the crossover. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, and I, I love watching it to to pick apart that stuff and mm-hmm. and kind of just think about the the logistics of how like the amount of money that would have gone into pulling that thing off, and it's like three seconds of screen time. Yeah, yeah. Which could be why the shields are so bad. <laughs> they just blew the budget on these other elaborate, yeah, practical effects with them. Um,
2: Interesting. Yeah,
0: I don't know. It, it's it's as a Lynch fan, it's such a bizarre. Like the fact that it is in his filmography, I still can't quite wrap mm. my head around And And he cites it as his one mistake is making this movie, which is a shame because I think...
2: As well, a standalone, it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. We'll put it that way. Yeah. I mean, it's it, not something that shouldn't have been made, I think. It's just something that has to be viewed in context and that context totally. is um, frustrating. But yeah, it is what it is.
0: Um unless you've got anything else you want to talk No, I about think Dune.
2: I think I probably need to start wrapping up anyway. I I do need to have a do need to leave. Yeah,
0: of course. So real quick, this movie came out in 1984. Do you have any other recommendations for movies that came out in 1984?
2: Um I mean it's a recommendation, but it's something that I feel like if you if you were going to watch you've probably already seen it. I mean it, it is 1984, but yeah. the original Karate Kid came out in 1984 and I really enjoy that film. I actually rewatched it recently. I got to say, it does hold up. Mm. Like, um, it's a good film, and it's. I, I can see why some people might dismiss it as just a an action film, but there's a lot of um, like. There's not much action in it, really. In fact, it's that would be ironic if you were to view it at like that, because the one of the biggest. Um, things that it's famous for is the early practice that um, I've forgotten the name um, of the, the teacher, but the teacher gets the karate kid to do is none of its combat. It's all like, you know, the wax on, wax off, yeah. slapping the water, all this kind of stuff, um, which teaches him the techniques and stuff like that. I I think it's a good film, you know? Um, and it's a interesting story about a boy sort of finding his way amongst bullies and there's some cliche aspects but I mean maybe it only seems cliche because as I said yeah um 30 what 36 years old um but yeah good film I think um I actually like in in Stranger Things which is set in a similar time period in the second or third season no it's in the it's in the third season um there's a, a poster on one of the girls walls of um I've forgotten everyone's names, but the kid who plays Karate Kid, Mm. and um, they were just like, "Oh, he's so cute" because they're like teenage girls, and he was a teenage boy, and he was kind of the, I I assume one of the the, the pretty boys of the time who all the girls had a crush on. But it was the Timothy Chalamet of sure, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. although I'd say maybe more boys have a crush on Timothy Chalamet (laughs) than girls. (laughs) (laughs) Um. In a way, they've gotten the two man crushes of a lot of men with yeah. Oscar Isaac and Timothy Chalamet and put them totally. in one good movie. Um, and it's sci-fi action. You've, you've covered all bases of men. That's right. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think Karate Kid is, is a good shout. If you haven't seen yeah. it, I'd give it a watch. And if you haven't seen it for a while, maybe re-watch it, you might- Surprise yourself. Mm. Um, There is a poster behind you, Jonty, of Back to the Future. There is. um, Which came out in 1985. So similar time range. It's very interesting watching those three films and seeing um, the difference between three films, two of which are sci-fi, but just the difference in and similarities of that time and film. Mm. Um, You can get a lot of different aspects of what was happening in the mid-80s. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, if I were to pick one...
0: I mean there, there are lots of obvious ones but I think one for me is Gremlins. Mm. Another one I saw probably I haven't was way seen too Gremlins, young. you know. It it's there's there's not a lot of them these days but like what I would call gateway horror movies that are Yes, no. Nah, for yeah. kids. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, but have horror elements. Yeah. Um So yeah, that would be my recommendation. There's a bunch of good ones though. Um The Terminator is another great one. Yes, um, that
2: is good. I'm one of the few people who thinks the original Terminator is better than the second one, so um, I mean, uh, the, the original Terminator is much more of
0: a... It's a slasher movie, essentially. Mm. It, it's a little bit like The Predator, where they're science yeah. fiction movies, but structurally and aesthetically, they're basi- they basically horror movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, whereas Terminator 2, is, that's just a... More of a sci-fi action, action movie. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, we better let you go. Yeah. Um, we will definitely have you back to talk about the next the, edition the of... The newer of one, G- yeah. Which will be really
2: interesting, because there are some things about... I, I have a pretty... I don't know whether it's a hot take. I haven't heard many people say it. Mm. In fact, I haven't heard anyone say it. So I I suppose that is a hot take about the new one and um, a massive character flaw in that film, in my opinion. Um, but it could be the beginning of an arc. So we'll we'll get into yeah, that yeah. next time we meet up. Um, but yeah, no, I really enjoyed this. Thanks for having me on. Sorry, I have to leave so abruptly. My phone's, no, no, no phone's no getting buzzed up because I'm late for dinner. Um, I just looked at my wrist and I'm not wearing a watch. <laughs>
0: it's right audio only no one saw it
2: (laughs) they did hear it when i
0: I told them (laughs) and we'll definitely have you back again again when part two comes out yes no i'd
2: love to yeah yeah yeah. um that will that should be a really interesting film to see how they handle the second half of that film because this film did a decent job with the first half but it's laying some interesting groundwork as well Oh, right? no, sorry. I mean, uh, the David Lynch, oh, the, the Lynch film Lynch one, right, does a right. decent job with the first half. The second half is which when is it goes the off the rails. Yeah. Um, so we'll be interested to see how Villeneuve yeah. um, treats that. Yeah. yeah. He's already um, made the first great decision, which is not doing it all-in-one film. Yeah. Yes, 100%. Yeah.
0: Um, where can people find you online? If they um, want to they can
2: find me on the Self-Care Project or... Actually, yeah, that's really where you can find me. Yeah. Um, I... Do have another podcast? I don't know whether it will be coming back. But you can follow the Artist Notepad because um, me and my co-host there, David Chun, we are starting to come back with some stuff and we're going to be coming back, hopefully, semi-regularly, um, maybe once a month with episodes where we talk about... Um, well, it's become a lot more about just us as people, but we do... we. There's plenty of episodes on there where we've tackled films, we've talked to artists and we've yeah explored a bunch of different topics. So feel free, if, if you've liked what I've had to say here... Um, all the rambling and nonsense, well, there's plenty more of that on, on that channel. I can
0: recommend The Artist Notepad as well. Awesome. I've, been, I've, I've been on a couple of times. So you have, way. you have. Yeah, That's we why. talked
2: about some films there, yeah.
0: Anyway, thanks for joining us. We'll no
2: worries, appreciate
0: it. See you all next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Blue Rose Film Podcast. As Jack mentioned on the show, you can listen to his two podcasts, The Artist Notepad and The Self-Care Project, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. You can support this podcast by leaving a five-star review, or even better, just sharing it with a friend. You can get in touch by emailing us at bluerose.filmreview at gmail.com, or you can find us on socials and get in touch there. Don't forget to check out the blog, where you can read more pieces by myself about great films and continue the conversation. Thank you to Acast for hosting this podcast. I'll see you next time, but until then, don't forget, the first half of Vertigo isn't slow you're just impatient. Take care.